0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 16 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, to mark the end of 2020, we're gonna hear moments from some of the best interviews Debbie did in the past year. Women should be able to make images for their own pleasure.
1: Boy, George was there. It was just like the wildest scene you've ever seen. This is special. Like, I I got it. I finally got
2: it. Creators, it's never been easier to build an audience and grow your business. And now you can do it all for free. ConvertKit's free plan can help you turn your passions into a full-time career by growing your fan base, promoting your work, and building a meaningful relationship with your audience. Now you can share your work with your fans by building a custom landing page in minutes, which can showcase your work and upcoming projects and ConvertKit's email designer helps you create beautiful, simple emails that can help turn your casual audience into true fans. Writing professional and personalized emails about your work and process will allow you to meaningfully connect with your audience. ConvertKit will help you earn a living by doing what you love with tools to help promote your work, sell products, and announce new projects to your fans. Go to ConvertKit.com slash Design Matters to sign up for a free account and find your audience faster. Today's sponsor, Lexus, employs engineers who describe the phenomena that when a Lexus is truly doing its job, you don't notice most of what it's doing. Sounds a lot like what I aspire to do with visual design. For Lexus, The specifics of craft operate in the background in order to get out of the way of the emotion they are intended to evoke. Chief designer Keoichi Suga described it as being akin to how happiness works. As humans, we aren't necessarily conscious of being happy, but we know immediately when we are unhappy. We notice the absence of happiness, not necessarily happiness itself. That kind of thoughtfulness and curiosity is what drives innovation at Lexus. Check them out at www.lexus.com curiosity. 2020 has been a strange, difficult year. But through it all, we've been plugging away here at Design Matters, having in-depth conversations with some of the most creative people in the world. I wanted to share a few moments from some of those interviews with you. First up, I want to play an excerpt from an interview I did back in February before New York City shut down. It was the last interview we did in our cozy little studio at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program. It was with singer-songwriter Lucy Wainwright Roach. She also happens to be the daughter of Susie Roach and Loudon Wainwright and the sister of Rufus and Martha Wainwright. Even though she's had a career as an educator, music runs in her blood, and she eventually bowed to what now seems inevitable. What made you decide to give up teaching and join what the Wainwright family calls the family business?
3: Um, I, in 2005, my brother, uh, who you might think isn't paying attention to anyone else. Uh, he, that's not true though about him. Uh, he kind of has a, a, a covert eye on everybody in a way you might not expect. And he was like, I think you should come out on the road with me this summer. And, um, I did. I went on his tour bus and I sang back up with him. I never spoke a word on stage. I was painfully shy during all of that, but it was really fun. I mean, touring on a tour bus is really fun and and living in his life for a minute is really fun. So when I went back to teaching after that summer, it had kind of gotten under my skin a little bit, like, But I really like that world, and I miss that world. And I think I, after another year of teaching, decided that if I was going to give it a shot, I better just do it. And thinking, like, well, maybe I'll come back to teaching. And so then um, after that next year, I left.
2: There were some wonderful versions of you and your brother singing Hallelujah on YouTube, which are just gorgeous. Yeah, that's what we sang.
3: That's the first one that we ever did together, yeah.
2: Your first gig, your first solo gig, was opening for your father in 2005 at the Rockwood Music Hall in New York. What was that like?
3: It was really bad. My first show was so bad. Like, I was so bad. Um, I was super uncomfortable on stage, not particularly capable, and not doing myself any favors. And the second show was at the living room which also is closed, I think, Um, and that one was much better because in that time, I realized that the best strategy was just to be myself. That's a very fast (laughs)
2: learning curve.
3: Well, I think it was such a debacle trying to, like...
2: Like, did you cry on stage? Or? No,
3: no, no. Your dad didn't have to not come that get time. you. Know that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, I was crying on the inside, and I was behaving like a weirdo. Like I was. I think I. I had watched so many performances that I think maybe I thought something else was happening, but really people are best when they're channeling their their real self. And um, once I figured that out, it got a lot better. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that the living the second show was like fantastic but it it was less it felt better
2: lucy wainwright roach from back in february of 2020 later in the interview she sang a few songs and if you hang tight we'll play one of them for you at the end of this program next up marilyn minter a visual artist whose photorealistic images are beautiful, erotic, and disturbing. I interviewed Marilyn in March after social distancing went into effect. We spoke on Zoom and Marilyn very nicely recorded herself on her phone, which has become our go-to pandemic recording technique. I spoke to Marilyn about some of the differences between now and the 1970s when she was coming up as an artist. And believe it or not, at least in this respect, it's better now than it was then.
0: Well, you know, I mean, there was no trans people in the 70s, you know. I mean, there there was no fluidity. There was no gender fluidity. Well, it was hidden. Yeah, it was totally hidden. As a matter of fact, there was no language for it. And the fact that there was no language... Nobody knew what was going on. There was nothing written. These I knew so many people that were quote asexual, and they were just you know probably in 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 the wrong or in the wrong body. The beauty of today is that we're finally looking at everybody who's been ignored, who's been written out, who doesn't exist. It's a it's a beautiful thing, really, for me to see the diversity that 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 we're accepting as normal and not as this kind of uh, I remember there was Christine Jorgensen. Do you know that name? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was like the first transgendered person. Yes. Swedish, yeah. And then there was a, right after that, there was sort of one, but there were these oddities. They weren't part of the world now. The language didn't exist. And that's what would hurt it. The language didn't exist for women to, to work with uh, sexual imagery either. It just didn't exist. We were unladylike if we even knew about it or something. I don't. You know, I don't really. I'm not an intellectual, obviously, but I just felt the disparity and and how all this was very wrong somehow. Women should be able to make images for their own pleasure, basically, or to look at images for their own pleasure,
2: or even even just their own intellectual curiosity. Exactly. I mean, that's part of why I like Maplethorpe's images so much. I just like to sort of have that view into a different world
0: yeah 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 Uh, that well he was very powerful artist on and you know i don't think he was ever saying i'm gonna be i'm gonna be i'm gonna uh, i think he just made the uh, oh my dog's about to jump on okay i have to do this get off come on because he's he's gonna i got this big uh sorry let's let me see. (laughs) <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Here I you are, him. little stinker. Oh,
4: look at the little monkey. Do you see him? Yeah. yeah. Oh,
2: well. Okay, he got
0: off. Yeah, okay. he was going to jump in my lap. I could see it coming.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Marilyn, you've said that when a work of art upsets you, it's probably good. Why is that? I, well,
0: it's so rare. <laughs> it got my attention, you know. Most artists make art that looks like art. And when you see something that's, that's another language, it's a, a, a fresh vision. And I don't actually, as an artist, I love looking at all the artists that made art before me. I see the threads of my work filled with, with their work. But when it's a, you know a brand new artist with a whole new idea, it's like threatening somehow too, but I've I've learned to embrace it. You know, I want to run away from it because it's you know oh you're going to take up that idea of oh taking up space that I could have, and I know that that's absolutely the worst attitude you could possibly have with new art. I really want to grow and change, and I don't think that happens without difficult conversations, and difficult conversations meaning embracing what looks strange to me or you know, it's going to disrupt my art world, so to speak. And it's going to leave me behind somehow. But I, you know, I look, I work through all of that. and I look at all of that and I think, okay, the best thing I can do is go embrace that artist and tell them how great he or she is. And then the envy disappears. Uh, the minute you tell somebody how good they are, see, I get rid of the poison that way. Marilyn Minter.
2: Next up, V formerly known as Eve Ensler, a lifelong activist and playwright. She's best known for her play, The Vagina Monologues, which premiered in 1996 and has been playing all over the world ever since. And of course I had to ask her, what was she thinking? What made you think at the time that that topic was worth a worthy subject of the play? And as an aside, I, I do wonder if you had gone to Yale, if what they would have thought of you writing a play with that topic,
4: <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. I don't think it would have been yeah. like, oh, goody, <laughs> um, <laughs> vaginas, you know, yay. yay, It's <laughs> like, like people always say, like, what country did you go to that they were happy about the play? I was like, there's never been a country that the play went to where they were like, oh, yummy, the vaginas are here. That has never happened. Um, <laughs> <but> <laughs> you know, never. That was never occurred. Um, but you know, I was interested. You know, one of the things I've always believed is that if you follow your own curiosity, if you follow your own bliss, if you follow like what interests you, what you care about, you will write the best thing. So I was interested in what women thought about their vaginas. And everything that women said to me was so surprising, so startling, so amazing, so shocking, so funny. I remember the first woman I ever talked to I said, uh, Well, do you ever talk about it? And she said, Well, my mother used to tell me, don't wear underpants underneath your pajamas. You need to air out your pussycat. And I thought, (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Oh my God. And it was like that. Like every person had something wild like that to say. And I thought, This is amazing. I feel like Pandora's box literally, we're opening it up and these stories that no one had told anyone before. Right. And what was particularly amazing is when I first started doing this show at, um, here downtown, women would line up after the show, literally line up to tell me their stories. Like they had to tell me. And it got to the point that like, literally I was inviting women over to my apartment and I felt like Dr. Ruth, like women hours (laughs) of the day, women were, and part of it was, I just wanted to give women an opportunity to tell someone their story because they needed to tell their story you know um and a lot of it unfortunately was about sexual abuse you
1: know yes
4: a lot of it for anybody that's seen the vagina monologues you you also
2: then begin to have a story about seeing the vagina monologues it's really it's a bit meta but i think it's really universal since 1996, the play has been translated into 48 languages. It's been performed in over 140 countries, including sold-out runs at Broadway's West Side Theatre and London's West End. You won a Tony, you won an Obie. The play ran for over 10 years in the UK, Mexico, and France. In 2006, the New York Times called the Vagina Monologues the most important piece of political theater of the last decade. Celebrities who have starred in it include Jane Fonda, Whoopi Goldberg, Adina Menzel, Glenn Close, Susan Sarandon, Cindy Loper, Sandra O, oh, Oprah Winfrey, Gillian Anderson, many others. I've seen the show twice, once with you performing the piece in its entirety, and once starring Alanis Morissette. What was it like at that time for you to become suddenly so successful?
4: It was shocking. (laughs) It was just shocking. I mean, first of all, if, if you had said what would be the piece that will bring you success, it would never have been, in my wildest imaginations, the vagina monologues. But what was really, really exciting about it was the beginning of the building of this amazing movement and community of women. Yes. That was so wildly exciting. The first night we ever, the 1st V B-Day we ever did, which was at the Hammerstein Ballroom, which seats 2,500 people, right? I had invited all these amazing actors to perform it and and no one had done it at that point. And Marissa Tomei had come to see me perform it with Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman, if you can imagine. Yes. Okay. And I went to her first because she had seen it and she said, yes. And, and once I had Marissa, then I could go to the next person say, but Marissa Tomei is doing it. And they're like, really? All right, I'll do it. And then I, I'd i say, but Marissa Tomei and Whoopi Goldberg are doing it. And then, you know, and, and it grew and grew and grew. But the night we performed it, okay, it was totally, just imagine this in the 90s, totally packed, 2,500 people. Boy, George was there. It was just like the wildest mm. scene you've ever seen. None of those women had Ever said vagina publicly, had ever done anything like that. So everyone was like vomiting and, and, and just completely freaked out backstage. And every time one woman would go out and do her monologue, everyone would be watching on this monitor. They'd all hold hands, they'd all scream and yell. And they just, it was the most beautiful sisterhood of support, of love. And I'll never forget Glenn, who I love so much. I had asked her to do the reclaiming cunt piece because it was really mm. about taking that word back. And of course, she was like, What? Are you crazy? My mother will never talk to me. And she hung up the phone and she called me back two weeks later and she said, I really get it. I, I said, I just want you to go out there with little glasses being all waspy and 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 by the end of it, I just want you to and and she did. And when she, she did, <laughs> she ripped open that word. And by the end, the entire 2,500 people were screaming, "God!" and it was like the roof of that theater blew off that night. It blew off. And to me, it was the beginning of the movement to end violence against women and girls. Now, there had been many women, of course, working on it before me. And we're always in a line and a chain of sister after sister supporting sister, right? Our movement goes mm-hmm. back to African-American women who were fighting slavery, right? It goes back to that's when that movement began. And then there's each stage of our movement and now we've moved into Me Too. But to be in that movement for that chunk of years, doing the play, spreading the play, getting women to share their stories, talk about their stories, break the silence. It was glorious. It was it was, it was was beyond a dream. I don't even know that I could have had that dream, you know?
2: That was the one and only V in conversation back in June of 2020. Back in 2017, I curated an exhibit called Text Me How We Live in Language at the Museum of Design Atlanta. The collection was focused on the intersection of visual imagery and language and how language is the connecting factor among the human race. It was built upon my belief that we live in and through words. We use words to express and define our reality. Somehow by having these concrete messages in one specific place where we can all view them at the same time, maybe we'll get to enjoy that feeling of being fundamentally connected. Today's sponsor Lexus, has a similar philosophy. One of their core practices is borrowed from the Japanese service and hospitality industry, and it is called Kigo. Kigo refers to words and phrases in the Japanese language that are used in a formal situation or that show respect and civility to each other. It's considered one of the most polite forms of communication, and Lexus wanted to apply that sense of respect when designing their cars. This is one of the many ways Lexus puts people at the center of their brand. To learn more about Lexus, visit www.lexus.com curiosity. Bisa Butler is a fiber artist who does extraordinary quilted portraits of African-Americans. In our conversation, she talked about the specific moment in school when she came into her power as an artist. But before we got there, we bonded over felting.
1: Isn't it the feel of that wet wool? It connects. There's something that is happening that I think is, is going all the way back to, you know, when we were just humans and trying to make our very first cloths. Yes. And she had an assignment for us. She said, you can make a quilt. It can be out of squares and geometric design, or you can make like a landscape, or you can make a still life. I don't think she said portrait. She said you could do a still life. So I made like a little oven mitt sized piece of a corner of the classroom. And there was stuff in there that we used in fiber. So it looked kind of domestic, like there was a blender. And I suppose maybe somebody was blending. I don't know if we blended inks or however it was. But I did that. And then I was like, okay, so I can make pictures of realistic things with fabric. I want to do for the final project, my grandmother's portrait. My grandmother's health was failing. And she didn't want to get a kidney transplant. She wasn't going to do dialysis. She was like, I'm... Not doing any of those things, so she was getting very ill, and I was painting her on the weekends. And then when I finished painting her, she hated that painting. And is this is the same <laughs> grandmother that resold your dress. Yes, <laughs> she. My grandmother was. She was raised with very high standards. Um, she was a a New Orleans belle. You know, she wasn't a Creole. She was a black woman from New Orleans, but. She definitely her ancestors were Creoles, and um, she hated the painting. She said, "I made her look old." And so, while that happened, I thought, "Okay, how about I make a quilted portrait of her for class? I can fulfill my assignment. I have my final project, and I've, I'm able to give something to my grandmother." So I used like all these fabrics that the teacher had donated. She had some black fabric with purple flowers and my grandmother's name was Violet. So I thought, okay, this kind of looks like Violet's use some of that use some lace. But while that was happening, I was um, coming up with my own aesthetic without realizing like that I'm using pieces of fabric to describe her, not just because they're pretty. And that portrait, I still have it. and My grandmother was so happy with it. She used to lay it. By this time she was bedridden and so she would keep the quilt over her legs on the bed, but she had to still have the tissue paper over it. She was just, like, really sweet. And and um, it was special because she loved it. And, and how I portrayed her was her wedding photo. So she was happy with the way she looked. And I should have realized that, too. Like, who wants a portrait done of them while you're literally dying? Like, that's not... I didn't connect. I didn't understand that she still had her own vanity and was still a beautiful woman. And she saw herself not as the sickly elderly woman. And so creating that, like, helped me to understand her as a person, finally. You know when people die and the pictures at the funeral are sometimes younger? Like once they die, they're ageless, right? It's perfectly fine to have a picture of her at 20 or 30 or 40. And so I understood that of her before she passed, that that's how she saw herself and that's how she wanted to be seen. And I was glad that I was able to do that. And that sort of kicked off my entire second, you know, half of my life.
2: Sort of reminds me of Lee Krasner's response when she first saw Jackson Pollock's strip paintings and said that he had found his voice. Did you have wow. a sense of this being you know this moment, this big breakthrough at that time? yeah
1: I for sure every well I showed my grandmother was so proud, and so she made anybody who came to visit her look at the piece. But my mom was one of ten, so I have a lot of aunts and uncles and so all of their responses were like, you did that? Wow. Like, they were really impressed. My professor and all my classmates were kind of like, you know, everybody else had a regular senior project. Right. (laughs) And when I busted that out, my professor, everybody was kind of like, okay, this girl is on the next level. Yeah. I think they could see it and I could feel it too. Like, this is special. Like, I, I got it. I finally got it.
2: Lisa Butler. Miranda July is a performer, writer, and filmmaker whose career I've been following for decades. In her early days back in Portland, long before she started making movies, she made ends meet with various jobs. I asked her about one of them. What was stripping like for you?
5: Um it wasn't like a a wild idea in the culture that I was living. Uh, in the midst of so I mean in a practical sense I remember my girlfriend and I broke up so and she moved out and so we were short one third of our rent and me and my friend who were left got to the end of the month and we're like what are we going to do um and she said well one of us could strip and I can't be me because I wear glasses And so I went down and did it, Um, went down to Mary's spot in Portland. I mean, in a most practical sense, I was like, oh, I can do less work for more money and have more time to make my movies and performances and do Joni for Jackie, which was increasingly all those things were taking a lot of time. And if I could make a bunch of money and go on tour, that was huge for me. And also it Came out of sort of a general interest in strangers um, and and like intimacy between strangers and also in the dare thing. I mean, you're not supposed to do that. That's like the main thing you're not supposed to do as a young woman is take off your clothes in front of strange men. Like, so to cross over that threshold was a little like having a superpower. Like, oh, this is no big deal at all. Like. Not only can I survive this, but I can kind of twist this to my own means is how it felt. So I, w- I didn't have to feel fragile in a way that I think I had felt growing up. And that was a lot of what I think I was doing at that time was kind of testing out, like, am I perhaps stronger than I was led to believe coming out of my family? And ultimately, I'd be like, oh, I'm strong enough not just to do this, but to like stand on stage doing my work in front of a thousand people. You know, like this bravery can be put to better use.
2: Miranda, there's a lot of physicality in a lot of your movies, body physicality. And I get the sense that you're very comfortable in your own skin. You seem to use your body with a great deal of ease. Am am I right about
5: that? Yeah, it's something I don't think about a lot, but I guess that's turning out, that's true, yeah. It's it's something that
2: I've tried to figure out in watching a lot of your work, how you can get so comfortable with your own skin in your own body. You seem to have almost a lack of self-consciousness of it at all. And is that something mm-hmm. that you've always had?
5: Yeah, I think it a little bit has to do with performing. It's sort of like going through the Atmosphere to the moon or something like a whole lot of stuff just burns off from the sheer intensity of that process, and like some of the things that are burned away are like a layer of self consciousness that since there's nothing I wouldn't do if I if I had a reason on stage, you know, I I, I feel so free there. Um, like I don't understand the taboos that have to do with the body. Like you have this one thing. This is it, really. This very finite physical being and so to be particularly um, hung up with it or hide it or not make use of all the ways it can be just seems sort of heartbreaking to me. So, um, so I'll, you know, sometimes I think just in daily life I'll move in a strange way or take off my clothes or something just to, um, just to have made use of it in that day. Do you ever feel self-conscious? I do. I know exactly that feeling, but I think I enjoy the feeling of remembering that doesn't matter, that it's like a a feeling like a little shame and then and then the joy that comes from blowing past it. Um yeah, it's not like it's not there, it is. Um but it's it's sort of exquisite to realize like it it has so much less power than it thinks it has. So you just push through the discomfort. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, there's a whole vast world here waiting on the other side. And it's the water's fine here, you know.
2: Miranda July, just one of my many Design Matters interviews from 2020. You can listen to all of them in their entirety on designmattersmedia.com or in your favorite podcast app. And I hope they make your pandemic just a little bit brighter. As promised, let's go back before the pandemic to my interview with Lucy Wainwright Roach to hear one of the songs she sang in our little podcast booth. It's called Call Your Boyfriend, and it's a song by the Swedish pop star Robin. Lucy Wainwright took this wonderful song with its driving synth beat and turned it into something entirely her own.
6: you To tell her that don't you even try and explain how it's so different when we kiss and you tell her that the only way her heart will mend is when she learns to love again and it won't make sense right now but you still
2: Lucy Wainwright Roach. Thanks for listening to this year-end special. There's so much more to come in 2021, so please keep listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. This is Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking to you in 2021.
0: Design Matters is produced for the Ted Family of Podcasts by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Master's in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland.